So I have a new obsession on the internet. What? Wine folly. Like, Mm, it's literally me being super nerdy, but I cannot stop reading the articles, reading all about the wines, and also um, the certified sommelier, Melanie Paquette, is hilarious and like she knows so much about wine i mean obviously she's a certified sommelier but her videos are really interesting and i'm like learning about how to taste wines and smell wines but they just have all these videos and articles about literally everything you could ever want to know about wine plus everything you didn't know you wanted to know about wine so i've just been down that hole so I've never really looked too much into Wine Folly, but I also have a weird new internet obsession. Porn. No. <laughs> I knew it. Oh, you just now got into it, though. You're a little yeah, bit behind everyone. I, did you know you can see <laughs> naked people online? It's it's insane. Uh, no, uh, not porn. It's called The Points Guy. And it's not porn, I promise. <laughs> but it's a amazing travel blog. And the thing that I like most of it... I love is him. They do reviews for, like, different flights. And I love reading reviews about these planes and flights that I will never take. But, like... <laughs> I read one, it was like, the first Airbus A321neo flight from Orlando to Phoenix in economy. What was it like? And I'm like, yes. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, I've read a lot of his blog posts about, like, different types of luggage, what he thinks the best, like, mm-hmm. how to pack carry-on only, which is my current obsession, is, like, trying to, like, pack carry-on only, no matter how long I'm going to be gone. Yeah, I've just always done that yeah i know but it's just i'm getting better and better at it um he also has really good articles about what are the best credit cards for travel points yes i have seen those but it's just it's great well hello everyone this is blood and wine i'm Brittany, and i'm tyler and we have some internet obsessions i guess yeah, very different, uh, oh yeah, not porn for you, not porn for you. Okay, yeah, well, so like very different ones. Also like two of our biggest passions though, like for real, wine and traveling. Like obviously we found blogs that are about those. I know, I think I could die happy if I went on a trip to like vineyards around the world. Yes. Like if that was an itinerary trip that like, oh, you know, you fly down to South America and you get to spend a couple days at these Argentinian vineyards a day at this chilean one and i don't know i guess then you fly to europe and that would be the longest fucking flight in the world. <laughs> that would be really far you know i would not be surprised if something like that exists it's gonna be real expensive but i bet something I mean, like that exists i mean yeah I, I imagine the more successful one would probably be like you fly to europe go to a couple in france a couple in spain a couple in uh, italy italy but I like mine in my head where you take a what would probably be like a 14-hour flight from like Argentina <laughs> to France. Well, you also have to go to Germany. They have a lot of wines there. They do. Honestly, have There's... we done like a Riesling on the podcast? We have. We did um, a dry Riesling because I actually enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we need to do one of those that's like a Gertschmerwerner or something. I don't know how to say the word, but there's a wine varietal that's from Germany and it starts with a G. 
And we should yeah. we should get one. It's a white wine. Um, a Gertzman Werner. Yeah, I'll ask the um, <laughs> I'll ask the the people at the store like, "Hi, where are your Gertzman Werners?" <laughs> okay, but I think it's close. Here, let's look it up because yeah, it's like a Gewürztraminer, something like that. That's much closer to Gertzman Werner or whatever we we're saying than I thought it would be. Yeah, no, I'm serious. I knew it started with a G. It has like the well, it has a W in it, but you pronounce it as a V because it's German. And it's got an, a U with the umlaut. Anyway, whatever. We're going to have one of those one of these days. Okay? Sure. Let's do it. All right. Well, hey, if you haven't already, be sure to check us out on Patreon. We have our murder minis. And we also have our newly released wine reviews, Bottle Talk. So the first one is on our Patreon now. It's been there for about a week almost. I guess a week this Thursday for when you're listening to this. And in that one, we talked about, like, the history of Cabernet Sauvignon, like, all about it, the Mm -hmm. parent grapes, the taste, the aromas, our favorite cabs, and y'all know how much we love cabs, so that is why we picked it. It's That's why it was our first episode. So be sure to check that out. Um, Also, we have different tiers. Uh, You can direct your own episode. As you know, last week was a Patreon pick episode. But yeah, and thank you to everyone who is a Patreon supporter. You guys are thebomb.com. Want to say a huge shout out to Star. She is a new member of the Merlot Mafia. So she is there now checking out all this extra content. And she is also an incredible artist who sent us some fan art that you can check out on our Instagram page. Yes, it's our first fan art. I kind of want to definitely like print it off, frame it, keep it forever. You know but... what? You know what I would just love? And, and I'm just going to put it out there. You know what? Fans do whatever you want, but it'd be super cool if someone could like draw a picture of us like cheersing or something. Just like some amazing fan art it would be so cool. Make me look skinny, please. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, so you can check out Star's amazing artwork on our Instagram also, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. We are on all the major platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, Tonefinder, whatever it is. All of them. Um, subscribe to us, so that way you'll get notified whenever we drop our new episodes every Tuesday. Yes. So I know you had uh, like a current news whatever that you told me like a little bit about, but I'm ready for you to tell me the actual like story. So what what did you see? So I saw this on CNN and I just, I had to share it. So this guy, Thomas Gilbert Jr., he is this Princeton kid who was accused and convicted of murdering his dad. Oh, dang. Because... His dad cut back on his weekly allowance. That was it? That was the whole reason? That was that was why. So he was found wow. guilty of second degree murder. But in January of 2015, uh, his dad, Thomas Gilbert Sr., was found in his apartment dead with a gunshot wound to the head. Jeez. And his defense was that, like, you know, yeah, he did it, but it was by reason of insanity. But the jury was like, yeah... 
no, like, we don't believe you. He was just upset and uh, took that out in very, very much the wrong way. Yeah, he wanted daddy's money, so he murdered his father. Uh, so, yeah, found guilty on second-degree murder for murdering his dad because he wanted a bigger allowance. And this, and like, just happened? The conviction? Yeah, so oh, wow. this conviction was... Friday the 28th oh. is when he was convicted, uh, the 28th of June. And sentencing isn't set until August, but it carries a sentence of 25 years in prison to life. So Yeah, I mean, it's second degree murder. And I feel like also one thing about this news story is it really kind of perfectly leads into the topic. Oh my god, it which... does. <laughs> Didn't plan this, but when I saw this news story, I was like, that is so perfect. I, yes. So our topic for this episode is strange motives. Yes. And like in this case, we just highlighted the motive being like, daddy, please give me more money. Money, please. <laughs> um, is a weird fucking motive. Although. No, I think money is a motive that's most people's. It just is the yeah. whole, I'm going to cut your allowance. Okay, well, I'm going to shoot you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's so interesting. Oftentimes in murder cases, I like the motive is such a big part of it. The motive can take what, you know, at face value is person A killed person B. It can take it to, you know, as far as how could a human possibly do this? This is so horrible. All the way on the flip side to, you know, almost siding with the killer. Or, I... you know, being able to see. I wouldn't, uh, like, put it to with. that degree, but I get what you're saying, because sometimes it's, I don't know, I mean, I always think killing people is, like, probably something you shouldn't I mean, do, but agreed. there's a different degree of, like, whatever that motive is as to the brutality a lot of the times of, of the yeah. killing, and as we've come to find out, sometimes motives are really weird. So, yeah, in this episode, I wanted to just highlight some strange fucking motives uh, for murder in our cases. Yes, definitely. Um, well, before we get to that, let's get into our wine. So the wine that I chose for this episode is the Grazie Old Country Red, and it's a red table wine from Lodi, California, from the E2 Family Winery. And I think think it's just available in Austin. I'm not 100% sure. I got the bottles for free as like a promo thing and they're like doing a big launch in Austin. That's cool. So the bottle is gorgeous. It's like this matte black finish all over and I don't know, it has the name of it and then a little like a, I don't know, a cow or something. I love that it, bottle. Its, thing. it's so but, simple and it like doesn't even have a paper label. Yeah. It's like printed no, on this like matte bottle. On, yeah. So I wanted to read uh, their description from the website because it sounds interesting, but says very little. Okay. <laughs> Old Country Red was born from adoration of Mediterranean cuisine, where wine is consumed as casually as water and as often as food. For hours, nightly, friends and family break bread, tell stories, and drink wine. The wine comes from a farm outside of town and is seldom labelled, bottled, or discussed. Smooth, delicious, affordable wine is not a privilege, it's a birthright. Spreading this culture of wine drinking is our mission, 
we buy smooth, delicious, affordable wine from exceptional winemakers, and we want you to drink it as they do in the old country, casually and often. Yeah, I definitely get what you mean by that says a lot without saying a lot. Yeah, um... I honestly could not find a ton of information on the wine because it's so new. Yeah. But I did find one review that mentioned that the blend it is, is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Petite Syrah, and Zinfandel. Ooh. And so I'm super excited. And it's the flavor notes that they gave were tart and fruity confluences. So. Okay. Um, I also have like two little mini bottles because i'm fancy and it's a screw top well if this is coming out in austin i definitely want to pick up some next time i'm there and and try this if you say it's good it sounds really good oh it's pretty it's dark i'm just gonna pour the whole bottle into the glass yep because i'm really classy you definitely just did that (laughs) yeah well you know So, tell me about your wine. Yes, while your wine breathes, the wine I picked for this episode is the 2018 Composure Pinotage from South Africa. And Mm. South Africa actually has a really long and rich history in winemaking, even though it's considered a part of the New World. So, you know how there's like the New World wines and Mm -hmm. Old World. South Africa is a part of this New World, but has a lot of history. Wine production is mainly situated around Cape Town, where the climate's generally warm to hot. You know, that's below the equator. But there's a current that comes up from Antarctica that provides this like brisk ocean breeze that's Mm. necessary for very steady ripening of the grapes. And one of the youngest wine varietals is Pinotage, and it was created from a cross between Pinot Noir and Cinso. And the grape itself looks and tastes a lot like a Shiraz, even though... The Pinotage is from a Pinot Noir. It doesn't have any Shiraz in its history or in its vines. Mm -hmm. You know, the vines of the vine. It was first crossed in South Africa in 1925 in the gardens of scientist Abraham Perold, um, which, you know, 1925, literally, this is so new. Yeah. So Abraham just observed how Pinot Noir struggled in South Africa's climate. So he crossed it with the very productive Cinso that was doing very well. And his goal was just to create a wine that was as delicious as Pinot Noir, but grew as well as Cinso. And the result of these was very unexpected. And Pinotage grapes are extremely dark in color, and the wine they created is very bold and very high in tannins. So despite the fact that it does have a very different flavor, it would eventually become the second most planted grape in South Africa. Oh. So the Composure Pinotage is very true to form. It exhibits aromas of raspberry, plum, and tropical fruit with flavors of dark plum, boysenberries, with a very full body and hints of tarragon and mint. It's made with firm tannins in a very bold and smoky style. So again, this is going to be a heavy wine. It has a very unique complex bouquet, which can only be found in the South African area. So you know if you smell this bouquet that I'll describe once I smell it, it's from there. 
the flavor profile of Composure Pinotage is the perfect balance of new and old world style. So I think it's going to be like fruity, yet also very earthy. Um, it pairs very well with roast beef, blank steak, and roasted vegetables. And it also mm-hmm. took home a silver medal in the 2019 Texas International Wine Competition and the 2019 Monterey International Wine Competition. Again, I've never had this kind of grape. I'm a little bit nervous because of how mm-hmm. it, you know, called it like a quote unquote different flavor. Um, yeah. But we're definitely going to give this a try. I'm excited. Ooh, that's pretty bottle. I'm excited to see what it's like because I feel like the last South African wine we had was that bee's knees. And it was so sweet. It was not our favorite. Yeah, and I mean, now that we've tried so many different wines, we have a little bit more of an idea of what we like and how to describe them. And so we always want to be very honest with you guys how we feel about a wine. And at that time, we had never tasted anything like that. So I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I think this is a good wine. But at this point, I'm like, it wasn't bad. It wasn't one of my favorites. But again, I don't like sweet wines, and I'm very biased in that. That's true. We do not have, like, blank palettes. No, not at all. That cork smells strong there. Yeah, from the sounds of it, we both chose some very strong wines. Yeah. So looking at mine, it is so dark. Like... Oh, I mean, same. Like, look at mine. It's. I mean, it's like black, basically. Like, I can't see through it at all, even when, like, I tilt my glass to see what kind of hues it is, but it's, it's so dark you can't even see. Uh, yeah, actually, same. I, like, poured too much to actually swirl (laughs) properly in this glass. Yeah, I mean, like, even putting my phone's flashlight on the other side of my glass, I cannot see through mine. I can a little bit with the flashlight. It's definitely more of, like, a blue-red You know, like not an orangey red, it's a blue red. Mine's a very red red. It is. Like like, a ruby. It's like a ruby blood red. So I'm smelling mine, and when I stick my nose in the glass, I can definitely smell some of the berries. And maybe it's boysenberry. I've never honestly smelled a boysenberry, so I'm not 100% sure, but it's definitely like a fruity smell. And I'm getting some type of like earthy, maybe leather, not really leather. I'm trying, I'm like new at like trying to actually think of, you know, the, the real words and like really think about what I'm smelling and put more thought into it. But it's really hard for me because I'm like, I don't know, I guess I just need to go around and smell a bunch of things. Yeah. I mean, mine... You definitely smell the oat. I get a lot of, like, cherry skin and almost a hint of, like, shoe polish. Like that astringent, like, kind of burn-your-nose hairs I have something also that's doing, like, the the burn-the-nose hairs, and my guess is just the alcohol. Which, because this one is 14% alcohol, so, I mean, it's up there for sure. Does yours even say what it is? Nope. 525,600% alcohol. I don't think you should drink that. Yeah, it's kind of like burning through my glass. It's whatever. (laughs) All right, are you ready to cheers? Let's try these wines. Let's do it. Cheers. Cheers. Hmm. Oh my gosh, this is so much sweeter than I thought it would be. Okay, so from the smell of mine, I was expecting this to be very heavy, very 
similar to the wine I did last week that was very good, but really would have been better with a nice fatty steak or something to eat with it. This is very smooth, very drinkable, definitely has those oakier flavors. I get that tart, sour cherry, kind of in the middle, very much waters your mouth, has a nice like minerality to it. You know, it has that, those earthy tones. Again, very obviously aged in French oak. Yeah. I am so into this. I'm getting almost like a plum also, like a juicy, that kind of juicy fruit. Yeah. Well, and I like that because I know when you were smelling it, you were not very sure how you were going to feel about this wine. No, it smelled very heavy. Yeah. And it is not a heavy wine. It is a very well very well balanced drinkable wine okay well i'm definitely getting a bottle of that when i come visit then yes if you remind me i'll look and maybe bring one up oh fingers crossed so this one is a lot fruitier than i imagined Um, when i read that it had like hints of tropical fruit i was like okay that's weird but i get it almost like a little bit of a mango. You know how mango is not necessarily tart, it's more sweet. So it's mm-hmm. got this sweetness, absolutely the plum, lots of luscious, dark, deep plums. It's full bodied, but it's not as full as I thought it would be. And I'm not really getting a lot of tarragon, um, maybe tiny hints of mint um, at the at the finish. It's got a pretty quick finish though. It doesn't linger very long in my mouth, but it's good. Honestly, I'm shocked. It sounds like that, weirdly enough, we got two very different wines that have very similar flavor and body profiles. Yeah, this one is just, I would absolutely put this on the scale of a little bit sweeter than I normally drink a red. It doesn't have as much earthy, but I really like it. Definitely high tannins, I can feel those. And like, the viscosity is pretty heavy. I mean, like I said, it's a 14% alcohol but the legs are are pretty heavy as they drip down. Honestly, if you want, we can make it more by just dropping a shot of vodka into the glass. And I'm going to pass on the extra shot of vodka, but you are welcome to do that if you would like to absolutely destroy your wine. But sure. Um, I'm good. <laughs> All right. So we have our wine. We have our topic. I'm going to jump into my case. Yes, I am really excited to hear about what strange motive case you picked. Because again, like when we were looking, there are so many. So there are a lot and there's a lot of interesting ones. One of the uh, cases that I saw highlighted really often was someone that you actually did early on in one of our earliest murder minis. uh, The girl who shot at the school who did it because she hated Mondays. Yeah, Brenda Spencer. She just said she was bored hated mondays and and obviously there's way more background into like why she actually did it but when she gave her reasoning she's like oh i just hate mondays which is like okay that doesn't you shouldn't like shoot up a school at all i know i think in the episode i was like all right garfield but anyways so the case that i chose for today's episode is the serial killer dana sue gray i don't know this one it's a lot okay and it's infuriating as fuck so the sources that i used are murderpedia hell horror which i have never seen in my life (laughs) uh world history 
just history of the world, <laughs> and the New York Daily News. So, Dana Sue Gray was born in California in 1957 to a very aggressive mother and a very passive father. Her mom, Beverly, was just very materialistic, and she would often max out her husband's credit cards just buying these luxury items that she never even looked at again. Oh my gosh. She just wanted to buy expensive shit to buy expensive shit. Yeah. So... They finally divorced when her husband found her just fighting with this old woman who had angered her. And this happened when Dana was two years old. Oh, wow. And afterwards, she rarely saw her father and she began to act out for attention. Whenever her mom would discipline her, she would retaliate by stealing money to buy candy She would occasionally just go into these fits of violence. And in school, she didn't get along well with the other students. And she did pretty poorly in almost all of her classes. She was also suspended from school quite a few times for forging notes to get out of class. So she's not a great kid. Yeah, just being like a troublemaker for sure. Yeah. It wasn't until her mom died of breast cancer when she was 14 that she actually was able to develop a relationship with her father. You know, at that point, after her mom passed away, she was forced to move in with her dad and her stepmom. Mm -hmm. And there, she kind of continued her, what she'd been doing, her acting up to get attention, all of that. And so the arrangement of her living with them didn't last long. Oh, shoot. And soon they kicked her out for having drugs in the house. And you said she was like 14? She was like 14. Dang. So she graduated from Newport Harbor High School in 1976. And afterwards she went on to live with her skydiving instructor, Rob, who was also her boyfriend at the time. And she lived with him for the next several years and helped her through nursing school. Um, During this time, she became an expert skydiver. Obviously, one of the benefits of dating a skydiving instructor. Obviously. Which, side note, I want to go skydiving so bad. Me too. I mean, it absolutely terrifies me. Like, I can't even imagine the adrenaline I would feel standing in an airplane with an open door, knowing that I'm supposed to jump out of it, which is, you know, why it's great that you have someone with you. And so, you know, you just, it kind of just happens. Yeah. Although I'm sure they're like, are you ready? And you have to be like, yes, uh, before they're going to jump. And, but yeah, I want to do it so bad. See, I would say something like, I don't think I'm ready for this jelly. And then they'd look at me and just like unclip themselves. And push you out. Be like, (laughs) bye. I really don't think so. I think that's exactly what happened. But no, I've seen quite a few. The ones that scare me are the ones that I'm most tempted because they're ones you like see Groupons for and you're like, oh my God, a day of skydiving for 60 bucks. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking that's... And then I'm like, actually, no, I don't think I want to go skydiving at a place that only costs like 60 bucks. That is one of those things, like like a good tattoo. If you want good quality work, aka you want to like stay alive and have someone who's trained very well... You probably shouldn't be looking for discounts. I mean, you know, I feel like you could shop smart 
and also not go super cheap because you know you also on the other hand don't want to go to a place that's expensive just because it's expensive no and it's all about educating yourself but i'm just saying like you're you're, like you were just saying like a groupon yeah maybe not it's just like a tattoo like i'm saying like you would never find a groupon for a tattoo or if you go to a tattoo shop and it's buy one get one free i mean you pay for what you get and then i'd be like oh well then what i want for my tattoo is half of this And for my free one, I want the other half of this. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, so Dana's dating skydiving instructor. She's in nursing school and she's jumping out of planes and shit. In 1981, she wound up graduating from nursing school. And during this time and afterwards, she wound up breaking up with Rob. And in October of 87, she married a man named Bill Gray at this upscale winery in the Temecula, California area. Oh, okay. He was, yeah, he was a fellow sports enthusiast um, and had known and admired her since high school. So he'd always had this crush on her. Both of them are now very athletic, very sporty. They got married. But pretty quickly after they got married... Their marriage got into trouble. Mm -hmm. Um, She dug them very deeply into debt. She took after her mom in that. Yes, she did. And also at this point in her life, she was estranged from her two half-brothers and had burned a lot of bridges in a dispute over her aunt's will. Oh, that's always so sad when family bridges get burned because of inheritance and wills and and that kind of situation and it's one of those where like you very much have to pick your battles yeah and unfortunately for everyone involved from the sounds of it dana was in it for the money so she burned those bridges yeah so she was a labor and delivery nurse at the inland valley regional medical center And she and her husband lived in a gated community of Canyon Lake, which is mm, like an hour south of L.A. Oh, there's also a Canyon Lake, Texas. And I was like, whoa, when did they move to Texas? Did you pick another Texas case? I I didn't. Canyon (laughs) Lake, California. (laughs) So after all of the debts and the marriage issues... Gray wound up leaving her husband in early 1993... And then moved in with their friend and her lover, Jim Wilkins, and his young son, Jason. So, she'd been having an affair with the family friend, Jim. Their marriage dissolved. She decides to move in with Jim and his son, Jason. Mm. So, then, in September of 1993, she and her ex-husband filed for bankruptcy to stave off foreclosure on their house in Canyon Lake. Mm -hmm. And then on November 24th of 93, she was fired from the hospital where she worked for misappropriating Demerol and some other opioid painkillers. So some people say that it was this chain of events that kind of was her life unraveling in front of her. That led her to her killing binge. Oh, God. So that, to me, sounds like it's a lot in a little time. Yeah. So on February 14th of 1994, Dana sent word through her ex-husband's parents because he kept his phone number and address hidden from her after they separated. But she sent word through his parents that she wanted to meet with him. And he initially agreed, but 
he didn't show up. Later, he would find out that she had taken out a life insurance policy on him because they were getting divorced, but they were still going in through the process and they were still technically married. Uh, but she'd recently taken out a big life insurance policy on him, big enough that if something happened to him, she'd be able to pay off the house and get them out of or get her out of bankruptcy. Okay, so she wanted to meet up and kill him, basically. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna go with yes. Yeah. Technically, the answer is still a circumstantial maybe, but, like, y'all, let's be real. I'm gonna think yes. So, two days later, on February 16th of 94, Alice Williams, who was a neighbor of 86-year-old Norma Davis, went to check on her friend that she hadn't heard from in a few days. Norma was the mother-in-law of Dana Gray's stepmother. So, Norma's son had been her, had been Dana's stepmom's first husband, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, And Dana had also stayed with Norma for a time. When Alice found her, Norma had been dead for two days. Oh, no. She had a wood-handled utility knife sticking out of her neck and a fillet knife sticking out of her chest. Other than a broken fingernail, she didn't have any other marks. A bloodied afghan was laying at her feet, and detectives learned that there was no forced entry into the house. They were informed that she always kept her door locked unless she was expecting a visitor, and Alice, her neighbor, said that she couldn't remember Norma mentioning that she was expecting any company. Detectives also found a Nike shoe print that was pointed towards the kitchen, and they also found Norma's $148 social security check. On the first floor of Norma's condo, there was also a smear of blood found on an armchair, and a ripped-out phone cord was also found. So it's like there's little bits of evidence, but it's not this, like, crazy scene of, like, self-defense or, like... Yeah. Like, a, a struggle. Yeah, it's like, okay, so she always kept her door locked unless she was expecting company. She wasn't expecting company, but there wasn't a breaking and entering. She had the knife wounds and a broken nail, but that's it. Her check wasn't stolen, but the phone cord was ripped out, and there's some blood smearing. It's just a very weird scene. I'm really surprised the check wasn't stolen. Me too. So, a couple weeks later, on February 28th of 94, 66-year-old June Roberts was killed. And June, like Norma Davis, lived in the gated community of Canyon Lake. Gray had visited Roberts one day, claiming that... She wanted to borrow a book about controlling a drinking problem, and Roberts let Gray into the house, and while Roberts was searching for this book, Gray unplugged her phone, both the straight cord and the curly cord, Mm -hmm. and then used the curly cord to strangle Roberts. She used the phone cord? The curly one? The one that none of us have anymore? Yeah. It's so scary... The everyday objects that are then turned into weapons in situations like this. Oh, a hundred percent. Because you would never look at, like, I don't know, a bottle of wine and be like, murder weapon. But then you'll read cases where it's like, oh, they were bludgeoned to death with a petite Syrah. Or a corkscrew. Yeah. I mean, every everyday weapons as murder weapons are horrifying. 
So in both of these murder cases, little seemed to be stolen from the victims' homes. Even their like diamond rings, their cash, their checkbooks, those were all left behind. Everything's still there. But then Robert's daughter told police that her mother's bank had called to report a bunch of activity on her credit card the day that she died. And among these purchases were swimsuits, cowboy boots, a ski mask, vodka, and a massage at a ritzy spa. There was some opium perfume, fancy shoes and sneakers, both men's and women's, and just a bunch of Random ass bougie shit. Sounds like a party. A weird fucking party. (laughs) Swimsuits, cowboy boots, a ski mask, and vodka. That's my kind of party. (laughs) Hey, you guys going to the, like, cops and robbers swimsuit vodka bash? Actually, that kind of sounds like a pretty fun party. I mean, it sounds like college to me. Anyways, so she's buying all of this random ass stuff. And clerks, hairdressers, and waiters described the person who was using these cards as a petite, well-dressed blonde woman who drove a brown Cadillac and was accompanied by either a small boy or, at other times, a tall, dark-haired man. So, basically, after killing Roberts, Gray rifled through her credit cards, stole two, and an hour later, she went on this massive shopping spree at an upscale shopping center there in Temecula. Oh my god. Yeah. That's ridiculous to do that so quickly after. Like, you're just an, an asking. Hour. You're just asking to get caught. So on March 10th, Darina Hawkins, who was 58, was alone at her antique shop there um, in the city when a young woman with bleach blonde hair stepped in. They chatted for a bit. And then this woman asked her if she'd show her a couple of paintings that were propped against the wall. Darina bent down to get these paintings, and at that moment, she felt a rope around her neck. She struggled fiercely, but could not get away. And the last thing that she remembered hearing before she blacked out was her assailant saying, Relax. Just relax. She has this rope around her neck and she's blacking out. That is really creepy. Thankfully, Hawkins did survive the attack. And she told police that her would-be killer spoke these words in a quiet, soothing voice. The kind that a doctor, or maybe a nurse, might use. Then, on March 16th of 1994, so six days later, not even a week, Mm -hmm. Gray killed Dora Beebe who is 87. Why is she preying on these older women? Because it's easier? This is... Yeah. And I mean, I say that, and you talked about Richard Ramirez and how some of his older victims survived the horrendous things he was doing to them. Mm -hmm. But it's like the elderly, I feel like, are looked at as, like I said, an easier victim. And that's horrible. Yeah, it's super fucked up. So just a few minutes after BB came home from a doctor's appointment... Gray pulled up in front of her house. Gray then knocked on Bibi's door and asked her for directions. Bibi invited Gray to come inside and they could look at a map together to find out where she's trying to go because she's nice as hell. Poor Bibi. She was just trying to you know, help this, someone. This random ass lady pulls up into her driveway, knocks the door and is like, I'm, I'm sorry, do you have directions to wherever? And she's like, 
Oh my god. Not only am I going to give you directions, but come inside. Let me show you my map. Like, she's this nice-ass lady. Once inside the house, Grey attacked and killed Bibi, and Bibi was found later that day by her boyfriend of eight years. An hour after killing her, Grey used Bibi's credit card to go on another shopping spree. So that's like her M.O. She murders women and then immediately after the killing goes on a shopping trip. I know. And I will say this is one of those things where and I don't know if like when you check out somewhere, if like the self like the the checkout thing where you insert your own card. I don't know if this was around in the 90s, but I feel like now pretty much everywhere you go, you never hand your card over to the cashier. So like, how do they know it's yours or not? They don't. Well, I mean, one thing that blows my mind out how kind of stupid she is and all of this is. So the the credit card companies and the police know that BB has been murdered and her card was used after she was murdered. So most likely the person using her card is the killer. Yeah. And they can see, you know, because they're a credit card company and they get the information that, you know, let's say at 256, the card was swiped at Jamba Juice. And the police can then go to Jamba Juice and be like, okay, who the hell was swiping their card at 256? Oh, it's this blonde lady. Yeah. And be like, hey, you remember this person? And they'd be like, yeah, she had either a tall, dark-haired man or a boy with her. And she was in a brown Cadillac. And I'd be like, ew, that's a disgusting color for a really expensive car. I wouldn't be a very good police detective. (laughs) I'm too judgy. Be like, yeah, that's not going to be hard to find. Just find a vomit car on the road. <laughs> the one? She was in this, like, lowered chartreuse Ford Expedition that had, like, these mauve seats. And it was a convertible Expedition. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the rims on it were gold. And three of them were spinners. One of them wasn't. And someone put a Mercedes you know, the little hood ornament on this car. It was, it was honestly the worst part of my day. It sounds like you almost like saw something that looks just like that. I may have. (laughs) Austin's a weird city. (laughs) Anywho. So all of this is happening in the Canyon Lake area. So a lot of the residents there are just terrified. Absolutely. Some of them moved in with loved ones until these murders would be solved. And a group of elderly widows begin sleeping in big groups at designated houses so that they're believing that there's safety in numbers. And if someone came in to to kill whoever lived there, there's enough of them they might be able to fight them off or something. Yeah. Which horrifyingly reminds me of your case of the Gainesville Ripper. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you said it, how these women were sleeping in pairs, like there was a group of them because, you know, there was safety in numbers. And that was exactly what the college students were doing in Gainesville when the murder was on the loose. Like I was, yeah, we had the same thought. So... A lot of the residents are theorizing that these murders are committed by a cult that was engaging in ritual sacrifice. That seems like a stretch. I don't know. Like... I think it does too, but I, I can see from the public perception because outside, it doesn't look like these women are being robbed. It looks, you know, they're, they're not being sexually assaulted. They're not being robbed Really? I mean, credit cards being stolen, but I don't think that knowledge was 
widely released. Right. So, you know, they're diamond rings, they're cash, all that stuff's there. It's these people that are just being murdered for what seems like no reason. So I kind of get it, but a cult engaging in ritual sacrifice is a bit of a leap. It is, and it's almost like that whole satanic panic that was happening in the mid-90s where there was like all the goth kids and so you know the reasoning behind a lot of murders was satan which by the way did you realize they did a study and they couldn't identify a single murder case that happened that was because of satanists like that that's not a thing it was totally fabricated well i watched a documentary a couple years ago on like what is Satanism? Yeah. Because growing up, you hear of like the animal sacrifices, the like, I don't know, bathing in blood, wearing a goat's head. I don't know. Maybe that was just what I pictured. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I'm imagining but a very not... like American horror story take on like what the common thought of Satanism is. That's not very and far then... off from what people were thinking about. Like, it was literally yeah. the worst of the worst. And, like, this was also right after Richard Ramirez did all his shit. Mm-hmm. But still, like, that wasn't why he was killing. That was just a part of his stupid ruse that he would do. Like, swear yeah. on Satan. But in the documentary, really my takeaway from it is that Satanists are just kind of boring. I mean, a lot of the things were just, like, about just, like, morality. Yeah. So it was, like, not harming others just for the sake of harm. There's, like, one of their commandments is basically, like, don't rape. It was very much more what I would think of if someone was describing, like, more earth pagan gaia type religion where it's like you know very much about balance and stuff of that and i was like oh so that's what like satanism actually is it's kind of (laughs) boring well and i feel like the satanic panic really came to fruition with the west memphis three like that case was yeah huge but that is a case for another time maybe because that is a monster of a case (laughs) for us to tackle Well, we've talked about doing an episode that's like crimes where people were convicted, but they they didn't do. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it it's an episode I want to do, but that shit's heavy. It's very heavy. I mean, all of everything we do is heavy, but that stuff's another beast. We don't have any light cases. I mean, no. Speck to Dana Gray and her murdering ass. So she was finally caught because of her description that was uh, obtained by the various merchants in <laughs> yeah. the Temecula area. And because of Dorinda Hawkins surviving and having a pretty accurate, like, oh, this was the woman who tried to murder me. Yeah, like, I could thing. pretty much tell you, if you'll show me some of that video surveillance, I could tell you if it's her or not. So, you know, again, one of the big ways they caught her was she'd been spending so much money, the credit card companies called the Roberts family and was like, there's a lot of spending going on. What's going on? She's like, well, my mom's dead. So it's not her. Yeah. The detectives then, you know, went to all these stores where she used the credit cards, interviewed the cashiers, got the physical description. And they also learned that Dana Gray had recently dyed her hair and had a little boy named Jason, which is something that the cashiers had mentioned you know, oh, yeah, she referred to little boy as Jason, and they're like, oh my god, it's Dana Gray. Yeah. So the day after the murder of Dora Beebe, 
police officers arrested Dana while she was cooking dinner for her family. Detectives took her into custody while assisting officers took her boyfriend and his son down to the station for questioning. During questioning, she claimed that she never took these credit cards. You know, she said this was a mistake. They have the wrong person. She didn't do that. And after detectives said they had evidence of her using them, she changed her story and said that she just found both Robert's and BB's credit cards. And she was like, yeah, I found these credit cards and I used them because I'm a bad person, but like... I didn't murder anyone. And she stuck to this story for hours. She claimed the reason she kept the cards was she had this overwhelming need to shop. But she also didn't seem to have any sympathy for the victims. She's like, I didn't murder these like late old ladies, like whatever, but I don't really care that they're dead. But yeah, I, I like to shop, so I kept their cards. And detectives are like, you're kind of an asshole. Regardless, I mean, we know you murdered them, but you're definitely coming across as a gigantic dick. Yeah, like, well, I, I just like to shop. Like, they died and I took their cards, but I didn't kill them. I just like to shop. And they're like, oh my god, what? People like to shop? Like, no shit. You know what people don't do? Steal cards from murder victims. That they killed. Another another way that I wouldn't be a good detective, I would just sass people. Maybe it would work. Maybe that's my thing. Ah, oh, I could be on, like, a CBS show. You're, like, the sassy, the sassy gay cop. Yes. <laughs> Where I'd be like, sister, I don't think so. Yay! So, dun, dun. Okay, so you're on CSI? CSI San Fran, yeah. <laughs> I love it. And it's, well, it's no longer Pride Month, but I'm gay, so I get to make all the references I want. Absolutely. And no one can stop me. You know, but the thing is, <laughs> we shouldn't just celebrate freedom in June. It should kind of be celebrated 24-7 all the time. Equal rights for everyone. Just want to say. Just because it's Pride Month doesn't mean, you know, it's the only time. I mean, it's true. But during, Pride Month, but during Pride Month, uh, gay people can do anything and it's not illegal. So it's like the purge? That's, that's the law. It's Yeah, it's the purge for the gays. <laughs> it's Pride Month. Duh. All right. Everyone knows that. And... Usually we just, like, I don't know, drink and adopt animals from shelters. I think that's a good thing. Anyways, back to Dana Gray. Officials found information in her home regarding June Roberts, Dora Beebe, and Dorinda Hawkins, who was able to identify Dana in a photo lineup. The deputy DA requested on July 23rd of that year for Dana to receive the death penalty for these murders, and she pleaded insanity on all accounts and a witness claimed to have seen her at june's house on the day june was murdered which then because of that evidence and the mounting evidence against her led dana to plead guilty to all charges to avoid receiving the death penalty yeah so she took a plea deal and dana sue gray was sentenced to life in prison on october 16th 1998 without the possibility of parole And to this day, she serves her sentence at the California Women's Prison in Chowchilla, where she sometimes sends collectibles to murderabilia websites to sell. Um, side note, I hate those websites. Like, I'm sorry. Same. There is a thing for being very interested in true crime and wanting to learn more. There's another thing for wanting to own one of John Wayne Gacy's paintings. Like, that's not... No. Yeah. No, owning a piece of this horrific part in history, like, come on. And I, I just... No, it's fucked up. I stand with that, and I don't understand it at all, and I will never be 
supportive of something no, like that. Absolutely not. Some of the things that she would post were things like autographed panties, hand tracings, and a prison-worn t-shirt that was decorated with a drawing of a blue butterfly perched on a skeleton's hand. And these things would sell for like 200 bucks. I don't get it. One thing that I wanted to note after this, because she's still in prison today. Only 8% of American serial killers are women, and Dana Sue Gray stands out as a different one among even that small 8%. Because often female serial killers murder people who are in their care, be it children, spouses, elderly adults. And often women kill in a more impersonal manner through the use of poison or guns. Rarely is it something that is close range. Most often women serial killers go undetected for a much longer period of time than men. Yeah, they do. And we've talked about this in a couple of episodes, especially with the poisonings and how women kill in ways that are a lot more discreet. And the Mm -hmm. way Grey was killing was brutal. I mean, she was strangling people. And that's that takes strength and time, you know? And brutality and like passion for it. Like Yeah. You you have to want to kill You do for that kind of like hands on No, it's true. And like you see it in T V and movies and they strangle someone and it takes like thirty seconds. No. It's many it takes minutes. Minutes. Yeah. And so that's a long time to be in that position. And yeah, I was thinking about that when you were talking about it, just how her MO is so uh unique. Yeah. I mean, none of this typical stuff was the case of Grey. During her month-long killing spree, she murdered three women and attempted to kill a fourth through hands-on and very personal methods. And all of this for the thrill of shopping sprees, because she wanted to go shopping. Not that she wanted money, or she wanted a thing. She just wanted to go shopping buy these things and then forget about them that is uh definitely a strange motive yeah so that is my case that is my strange motive let um i want to hear what case you chose the case i picked is david berkowitz also known as the son of sam there we go okay the sources i used were wikipedia crime and investigation and all that's interesting David Berkowitz terrorized the streets of New York City between the summer of 1976 and 1977, and I'm about to tell you exactly why. I feel like there's a lot more, like, Los Angeles serial killers than there are New York City ones, even though New York's twice the size of LA. I think there's unfortunately just a lot of killers everywhere. I mean, true. Do you want to know a fun fact about city size that'll be our nice bright spot before you get into your super fucked up case? Okay. In most countries, cities follow a trend where the largest city, you know, is in the first place. The next biggest city is usually half the size of the first. The next biggest is usually a third the size of the first. And then fourth being a fourth, fifth being a fifth, and it goes down and it's a pretty accurate scale across almost every country you know the weirdest things but like in the u.s you have new york city which is 
eight to nine million. And then the next biggest city is Los Angeles, which is about four million, so about half that. The next is Chicago, which is like three, a little over three million. So it's like a third of New York. And it's just interesting. And then you have cities like Delhi that has almost 19 million people. I cannot imagine being in a city that is bigger than the majority of countries. I know. Because just think about that. The city of Delhi is 19 million people. The entire country of Canada is 30 million people. And Canada's huge. Yeah, it's the second biggest country in the world, land area-wise. Yeah. Ridiculous. After the Russian Federation. So, there's that little fun fact. Now, that's just son of Sam it. Okay. So, David Berkowitz was brought up by middle-class adoptive parents. However, his birth mother, a woman named Betty Broder grew up in Brooklyn, and she was a poor, single Jewish mother trying to cope with bringing up a younger daughter. She later had a relationship with Joseph Kleinman, and she got pregnant. Kleinman was not happy. He did not want another child. And so when David was born on June 1st, 1963, Betty put him up for adoption. David was taken in by Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, And they were just fully devoted to him. They loved him. There was nothing in his childhood that would indicate he would become a violent serial killer. However, as a lot of our classic serial killer profiles go, he was a loner and very much isolated himself from his peers. Like a lot of kids and teenagers, he felt unattractive and... Although most people remember him as being this nice-looking boy, he tended to display this aggressive, violent streak, and he would bully other children. And his parents were finding it pretty difficult to deal with his hyperactive behavior. So he's, to be completely honest, seems like a lot of teenagers do. You know, he's very hyper, he has very low self-esteem, and he's just completely secluding himself. And unfortunately for Berkowitz, this turned into, you know, he never grew out of that. Yeah. In 1974, David Berkowitz returned from a three-year military stint in South Korea, where he excelled as a very proficient marksman. Wait, when he was 11 in 1974? What year did I I say he was born? You said he was born in 63, in June of 63. Oh, sorry, guys, that was 53. My bad. June 53. <laughs> okay. Okay. But like... You know, they just, they send him over really young these days. I mean, it was Vietnam, and so you never know. Um, So he's back from South Korea, and he still felt very alone and was dealing with a lot of emotions relating to both his own adoption and the death of his adoptive mother to cancer when he was just 14. And so that was one of the events that happened that very much devastated and disturbed him. I mean, yeah, I I can see how that would be hard on anyone. Absolutely, it would be. And devastating. I need more wine for your case because it's, I can feel that it's just building. Oh, we haven't even. crack open. We haven't even gotten started. little bottle too. Oh, I know, (laughs) but. Little Bottle 2. So David Berkowitz developed a sense of 
self-persecution, as if this, the whole world was conspiring against him. By the time his father remarried and moved away to Florida, Berkowitz was 18 years old, and he had become increasingly isolated and cut off from society. And at the same time, his sense of alienation was just continuing to grow, as did his capacity for fantasy and self-delusion. When he was 22 years old, Berkowitz found out that his birth mother, who he thought had died in childbirth, was actually still alive. However, oh, when he did finally meet her, she seemed somewhat distant and disinterested. I also read something that said she was very welcoming, but he seemed distant and disinterested. But regardless, this only intensified his belief that he was unwanted, not just by her, but by all women. Oh, God, is he one of the, what do they call themselves today? The, the incels? What? It's... It's short for, like, involuntarily celibate. It's guys that are trash who think they, by virtue of being male, deserve sex. And, like, women not wanting to fuck them is, like, a crime against humanity. They're the gross-ass kind of men that are, like, pro-violence against women. Like, are the kind that online, they're, like pro-rape, and they're just trash human beings. So, from that description, I would say yes, he falls into that camp. He felt like sex was something that was the answer, it was the way to happiness, and he was being denied this key to happiness. Sex is great, but have you had, like, a good Philly cheesesteak? Or, like, gone on a trip somewhere? I, But, like, seriously, it's that's one of those things that always confuses me that i'm like people like sex is the everything you know in like this case and then in like even like i don't know like broy movies and stuff where it's like oh we gotta get laid and stuff right. i'm like but have you ever like i don't know gone mountain climbing because it's pretty great too like there's a lot more to life than just like sex it's true like you can read a good book You can listen to a great podcast. When Berkowitz was a child, he killed animals, started fires, and destroyed a lot of property. And as he got older, he just lamented his lack of a social life and his inability to get a girlfriend. And this is when the whole, like, oh, I'm being denied sex came into play. So, like I said, he had this taste for arson, and he started setting hundreds of fires in the city. And this destructive path that he was on with setting fires to buildings was, it's soon going to morph into something a lot more sinister, the killing and maiming of innocent victims. In 1975, he was, for the most part, a recluse. He only ventured out to buy food and his behavior became more psychotic as his paranoia just continued to grow about the outside world. So finally... By Christmas Eve, something inside David Berkowitz snapped. He followed two teenage girls on the street and stabbed them from behind with a hunting knife. Both of the girls survived, but because he did stab them from behind, they could not identify their attacker. Unfortunately, this was only the beginning of his violent outburst, and it would turn into this very horrific killing spree. 
About six months later, on the morning of July 29, 1976, after he had gotten a 44 caliber gun in Texas, Berkowitz approached a parked car from behind in a Bronx neighborhood. That night, there were two girls, 18-year-old Donna Laurie and 19-year-old Jody Valenti, and they're just sitting in the car, parked outside of Lori's family apartment, and they're talking. Her parents arrived home, and they had cautioned her to go in due to the late hour. They're like, Donna, you know, come on, it's late, you need to come inside. Shortly after her parents went back inside, a man appeared at the side of the passenger door of the car. The girls were obviously very startled, and within seconds, this man pulled out a forty-four caliber gun from a paper bag and fired five times. Jody was shot in the thigh and leaned on the horn as this man just continued firing, emptying the chamber completely. Donna was killed immediately, and her extremely distressed father, still wearing his pajamas, like rushed outside, grabbed her, and took her to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead. Berkowitz, after all of this happened, you know, before the father came out, he just left. He didn't even look inside the car. He found out the next day in the newspaper that he had killed his first victim. It honestly really makes me question if that was his first victim or is that just the first known victim, just with how callous he is, how much he's like, whatevs. But that might also just be pointing to how fucked up he is as a person. Yeah, he's very messed up. I mean, that's apparent. Three months later, on October 23rd, 20-year-old Carl... Dinero was chatting it up with Rosemary Keenan at a bar. You know, she's a college girl. They're just like having a conversation. Yeah. They left. They're chit chatting. Of course. It's your typical bar night. They left at 2.30 in the morning and drove in his car to her house. As they were talking, Berkowitz suddenly appeared in the passenger window and once again fired five times. Carl was wounded in the head, but Rosemary was able to drive away and rush him to the hospital. He Oh, yes. He did survive the ordeal, but he had to have a metal plate inserted into his skull. Medicine is just incredible that someone can be shot in the head and survive. I know. I know. I feel like we've like, talked about a lot of instances. Yeah. And it makes me think it I, happens more often than we realize. Which is horrifying that People get shot in the head more often than we No, no, no. I meant, care to realize. I meant people survive it more often than we realize. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. Agreed. Cheers to all the medical professionals out there who are literally saving lives. Like, just how much your body can go through and due to doctors and nurses and all these people that are medically trained you can live through, like, some of the worst trauma imaginable, and you can survive. It's true. You really can. So, just about a month later, on November 26, 1976, two young girls were returning home after having been to the movies. 16-year-old Donna DeMazi and her friend 18-year-old Joanne Lamino stopped at her house. She noticed a man, Donna, she noticed a man hovering nearby Joanne, And Donna starts to quicken her step. You know, unfortunately, a lot of us have been there. There's just someone that just feels like, I don't know if I want to talk to this person, so I'm just going to quicken my pace. Yeah. This time, Berkowitz spoke, 
and he asked them where he was. Which this is so unfair because it's like he's prying on someone's politeness. Yeah. Again, this is why fuck politeness. It, my favorite murder, what they say, so fucking true. Fuck politeness. Yeah. You don't owe anyone anything. But he didn't give them time to reply. He pulled out a gun and started firing. He hit them both. He then fired at a house and he ran away. Joanne's parents rushed outside. They were literally almost home. And they saw this very tragic scene. Donna was lucky and the bullet had exited her body, but Joanna's spine was shattered and she was left a paraplegic. But both of them did survive. I'm glad they survived. It always breaks my heart when people are literally at their doorstep. Like, they're so close to being home and out of harm's way. That if he had showed up 20 seconds later... This probably wouldn't have happened. But, like, the sardonic and dark thing is what would have happened is a little bit further down the block someone else two other girls Mm -hmm. would have been shot so at this point police did not realize that these separate attacks taking place in brooklyn and queens were linked and there was only one bullet that was recovered from the scenes of the crimes so fast forward a little bit to january 30th 1977 And 26-year-old Christine Fruend and her fiancé, John Deal, were walking back to their car after a night in Queens at a wine bar. It was about 12.10 in the morning, and they sat chatting in, in the vehicle. Two shots shattered the windshield, hitting Christine in the head, and John lay her down on the driver's seat while he ran for help, but Christine died in the hospital. Police were now waking up to this extremely disturbing realization that they may have a serial killer on their hands. Yeah. The first thing that stood out about the shootings was the unusual kind of gun that had been used on all of them. Soon they realized that Christine's murder matched those of the previous shootings and a homicide task force was put together, but they didn't have any apparent leads at this point in time. And it really did look like these killings were the work of a maniac who was just going around shooting people. Yeah. Virginia Voskerichin was a college student returning home from classes and she would be the next victim on March 8th, 1977. She was walking in the very affluent Forest Hills Gardens neighborhood. That neighborhood sounds very affluent, yeah. It does, but Berkowitz did not discriminate between neighborhoods and he approached her from the opposite direction he pulled out his gun and virginia instinctively held up her books to protect her and a single bullet hit her directly in the face killing her instantly i had hoped as you said it that it would have been something where you know she held up the books instinctively and that's what saved her no because i'm not telling a happy tale no you're telling a real tale so As Berkowitz ran away, he even said hi to someone passing by. So he may have been caught right then and there by a passing patrol car if it wasn't for the fact that they abandoned chasing what they thought was a really suspicious guy and instead went straight to the scene of the crime. So it's like their radio went off. They saw someone who looked suspicious, but they had to respond to the situation. 
Uh, and it was him. Which, I mean, you you can't fault them for that. No. They get a call about a shooting. Yeah, they're going to be like, okay, well, dude who may have, I don't know, robbed a bodega is off running. This is a shooting. The dude they were chasing was the fucking murderer. But of course they didn't know. No, no. To them, it was just someone who looked suspicious and they had to go see if they could help a victim. So. Yeah. However, Berkowitz wasn't done. And on April 17th, 1977, close to the area where one of his previous victims, Donna Laurie, had been murdered, a young couple was in their car kissing. Valentina Surani was 18 years old. She was an actress and a model, and she was in love with Alexander Isau, her 20-year-old boyfriend. Mm -hmm. So at 3 a.m., a car pulled up beside them. And in this car, Berkowitz took out his forty-four and shot each one of them twice. They were both killed. Valentina instantly, while Alexander later died in the hospital. So it was at this time that Berkowitz started writing taunting letters to the New York Police Department and then also to Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin. This was the very first time that he referred to himself as... The son of Sam. So, and maybe you'll explain it later, but what does that mean? I'll explain it later. Who the hell's Sam? I'll explain it later. Okay. That goes into the motive portion of this. So, the police developed a more detailed profile of the killer. They knew it was someone who was most likely a paranoid schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur who believed he was possessed by demons. That's so specific. Well, profiling is really good. It blows my mind how good profiling is. Yeah. Because they'll be like, oh, it's someone who, you know, grew up eating fish sticks and pork chops and to this day does not eat pork chops, but when drunk will occasionally eat fish sticks. And you're like, oh (laughs) my god. Oh my god. The killer comes out and is like, okay, yeah, that's me, but... Like, yeah, I did it, but I just want to know how you knew that. Seriously, though, they're so skilled, and it's it's one of those professions that just blows my mind. It's like this this marriage of investigation and psychology in a way yeah. that's... Like investigative psychology? Mm-hmm. So there was very little doubt that their perpetrator was a loner and most likely had never experienced a successful relationship which is Berkowitz to a T. The Omega Task Force had been organized and was dealing with hundreds of calls and testimonials that they were getting from the public. And every single call that came in, all those suspects had to be checked. So they were busy. You know, it was very time consuming. It was a psychological strain on the police force. And they were just all trying to catch this indiscriminate killer who was eating away at the morale. Like, they didn't really have... They had a profile, but they had no suspects. And so they're getting all these calls, so they have to investigate everything, but it's turning into nothing. And all of the media attention that was happening around the Son of Sam killings was most likely giving Berkowitz a thrill, making him believe he was now important. He was like this infamous celebrity. So he wrote another letter... This time, this one went to the reporter of the Daily News. Again, it was just this rambling, pseudo-intellectual rant, desperate to appear poetic. So he said, 
We get this. Here's what he said. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which is filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. So, like, dude, you're not good. Like, what are you doing? No, it's like, okay, yeah, cool. You took pre-AP English and you got a C in it. Great. This later also included disturbing references to one of his previous victims, Donna Laurie, describing her as a sweet girl. And it ended with a very chilling reminder that the writer was going to kill again. And he said, you'll see my handiwork at the next job. His, like, cockiness oh, and yeah. this shit. He's just a trashy little fuck. He's a little bitch. So... Let's kick his ass. <laughs> The police did request that the newspaper withheld some of the aspects of this letter because they wanted to be able to determine if there were any copycat killers or just oh, just yeah. some people who were claiming to be the son of Sam. They needed to hold back some evidence, which we know is something that yeah. officers do a lot of the time. New York was absolutely in a lockdown, panicking over who's going to be his next victim Bars and nightclubs were absolutely deserted. People weren't going out. And this is New York. Yeah. The end of the killings came July 31st, 1977, when Berkowitz killed Stacy Muskowitz. Stacy and her boyfriend, Robert Violente, had been to see a movie, and they drove to a quiet spot near Gravesend Bay in Brooklyn. Eventually, they got out of their car and they went for a walk towards some swings. But when Stacy saw a suspicious character hanging around, she insisted that they head back towards the car. However, despite Stacy's desire to leave, Bobby convinced her to stay just a little bit longer. Moments later, gunshots fired out and the car's windows were shattered. Stacy was shot and fell away from Bobby, who had been shot twice in the face. Bobby managed to crawl out of the car and cry for help. Stacy's injuries were severe, and she did die in the hospital, while Bobby was left blinded in one eye and with only 20% vision in the other. So he was basically blind. In all, David Berkowitz had gone on a killing spree that lasted for 12 months. By the time he finished his eighth and final attack in July 1977, He'd killed six people and wounded eight, almost all of them young couples sitting in their cars at night. So after Stacy Moskowitz's murder, police got a call from a witness who would break the Son of Sam case wide open. The witness saw a suspicious looking man near the scene holding a dark object and taking a parking ticket from his car window. So police went and searched the area ticket records for that day and they pulled up the license plate for David Berkowitz. They got this guy. They did. And I feel like it's always like a traffic violation, a ticket. It's the little things that mm-hmm. a lot of serial killers are caught because of. It's like they're so crazy intelligent. Yet when it comes to these like everyday humane things of like, don't park your car there. Don't speed. Remember to use your turn signal. 100%. I mean, like... Timothy McVeigh, who perpetrated the Oklahoma City bombing, was pulled over because his, like, he didn't have a license plate on the car. Like, 
dumb ass shit like that. It's just that these people think that they are like so much more intelligent than everyone else, so much above everyone else that like little shit like that does not even occur to them. And it's like, well, that's the shit that got you caught, you bitch. Well, and like even Bundy was caught because of a traffic violation. Like that's how a lot of people are brought down. So police at this moment are are thinking at the very least, they've at least found a witness to the crime. They're not yet like suspecting him as being the murderer, but they arrived outside of Berkowitz's Yonkers apartment and saw his car. Inside his car, there was a rifle and a duffel bag filled with ammunition, maps of the crime scenes, and another letter that was meant for the authorities. Just sitting in his Just car? In his car. So, promptly, the police went to the apartment and arrested Berkowitz. And when he was exiting, arresting officer Detective Falatisho held a gun up to him and said, Now that I've got you, who have I got? And Berkowitz said in this very, like, soft, almost sweet voice, You know? No, I don't. And the detective insisted, You tell me. Who do I got? And so the man turns and he says, I'm Sam. So Berkowitz is just like this weird, like, soft, sweet, like, not at all feeling threatened what's happening. And he's like, you tell me, who am I? I don't know. Soon, the police found that David Berkowitz's apartment had satanic graffiti scrawled onto the walls and diaries with details of all his activities. Who graffitis their own apartment? Like, don't you want your deposit back? I really think that was the least of his concerns. I mean, yes. So there was copious evidence stacked against Berkowitz and attempts to use an insanity defense. They didn't work. They were thwarted by psychiatric testing and Berkowitz pled guilty to all charges. So in the end, it didn't really matter about identifying his state of mind because he pled guilty And he said he was responsible for his actions and was sentenced to 365 years in prison. He is now serving his sentences at Shawagunk Correctional Facility in Wallkill, New York. So, Hmm. why'd he do it? What was his motive? Yeah. After his arrest... Who the hell's Sam? I'm about to answer that question. So, after his arrest, David Berkowitz was interrogated for about... 30 minutes early in the morning of August 11th, 1977. That is a quick interrogation. After questioning, Berkowitz claimed that his neighbor's dog was one of the reasons that he killed, stating that the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls. Um. He said that the Sam mentioned in the first letter was his former neighbor, Sam Carr. So the son of Sam was the dog. Um... Berkowitz claimed that Carr's black Labrador retriever, Harvey, was possessed by an ancient demon and that it issued irresistible commands that Berkowitz must kill people. Um, yeah, that's a no for me, bro. <laughs> so a few weeks after his arrest and confession, Berkowitz was permitted to communicate with the press. And in a letter to the New York Post dated September 19th, 1977, David Berkowitz alluded to his original story of demonic possession, but closed with a warning that it had been interpreted by some investigators as an admission of criminal accomplices. 
and that there are other sons of Sam out there. God help the world. So he did eventually recant his whole, the demonic possessed dog told me to kill people, but it's still, that's why he said he did it. And it's why I picked this. What the? It's why I picked this case because it is one of the strangest motives ever. And and clearly there was a lot else going on, but when yeah. Point Blank asks why you do this, he's like, oh, the son of Sam, Harvey, my neighbor's dog, told me to do it. It was the demons in him. I mean, I think we've all met demonic possessed dogs, like, you know, the kinds that, I don't know, maybe your neighbor owns that just don't shut the hell up ever. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know, just an example that maybe someone has never have through their incessant screaming have i or i mean i mean anyone heard you know bring me the blood of young women all right well do you want to hop into postmortem let's do it but since you suggested it let's have you start i mean i think mine was crazier it was a dog it was a dog i'm just saying oh if we're going no i mean I mean, I agree. <laughs> I'm like, if we're going off of what was the most intense, crazy what? Yeah, the dog. I mean, Dana Sue Gray, like, you know, she murdered people to steal their credit cards to go on shopping sprees is one level of like, what a weird motive. It is. The dog told, my neighbor's dog told me to bring them the blood of young women is a whole nother fucking level of weird. Agreed. So... Shit. Shortest postmortem <laughs> ever. Uh, yeah. Yep. I was about to say it doesn't get weirder than David Berkowitz, but it does. But this one's just really weird. So, all right. You can pick our topic again next week. And I hope you pick a good one. Oh, I will. Um, but while I am gonna take the week to think on this topic, do some research, and find one that is gonna blow y'all away... Y'all should make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars if you enjoyed us. Let us know what you liked. Yeah. Be sure to also follow us and like us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Check us out. Be sure to hop on over to our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Um, we've got our merch store up there. Be sure to check out all the goodies. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. So, so you guys, bye. Bye.